Welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be discussing the European Union, its future, if it has a future, um, it's, and the kind of challenges it faces, and really what it is, because for a lot of us, even those of us who know a bit about politics, it is a bit of a mysterious organization, uh, though ever-present. Uh, with us this week, or with me this week, is just one person, the only person who could be arsed to show up, and that's James. Who else but my lifelong companion, and sometimes um, <laughs> porn describer, because I can't watch porn, but I, he they can describe it to me. Sometimes uh, anime as well. What was that about sperm, sorry? <laughs> What's that about scrotums? What are you talking about there? This is come town, buddy. Um, um, yeah, hello, folks. Uh, not to get all real politics really early on in the, in the podcast, but did you happen to see my gape's Christmas tree? What was that about your gape? Um, <laughs> Yeah, Mike's Ga Mike Gape's Christmas tree a couple of days ago. No, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know who Mike Gapes is? No. Oh my god, man! Sometimes I, 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 got a new, I got a new phone like two weeks ago. I did not put Twitter on it. Didn't put any social media on it. So I'm just divorced from the world now. Okay, so Mike 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 Gapes uh, was a Labour MP for the Ilford North, something like that, um, and he was like. Uh, one of the main people that tried to stab Corbyn and ended up in the cocktail party. Um, but he's famous. Otherwise known as Change UK. Yeah, he's he's famous for doing the speech about the about the EU, uh, about Brexit, about the the milk and Baileys, the milk from the north and the milk from the south, and they they combine them together to make Baileys. You're telling me you've never heard of this. No, this is the first time I've ever heard of it. I and mean, I'm very happy I've never heard of it. Um, it sounds like something that would just take up space in my brain. Okay, well, I mean, if we start, if we start getting into Mike, Mike Gapes, Milk Gapes. I don't want to hear about your Mike Gape. Um, <laughs> look, whatever you do in your private life or in your work life, for that matter, is completely up to you and more power to you. King, I'm not going to kink shame you. So on to the subject at hand for those of you tired of Comtown. Um but who's really tired of content? Um, so yeah, I suppose the easiest thing to do is begin in a simple way, because the EU can be very complicated and bureaucratic. Um, we'll start with something simple like identity, because everyone likes talking about identity. Um, do you, James, otherwise known as Ipu, uh, do you feel European in any sense, whether that be identity-wise or politically-wise? If so, do you think the EU helps this or hurts it? If not, why not? Go for it. Well, this is something you like to bring up uh, once in a while of when we were living together back in the day in Edinburgh. And uh, you would go, you, you bring up the fact that I think once I said that I didn't, I felt more European than Scottish. Um, no, no, you didn't say that. You said you were European, not Scottish. That's, <laughs> you were drunk as well. That, 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 uh, should, that should be taken into consideration. Well, I mean, I was often drunk. Um, I mean, I'm drunk now. So. Um, yeah, but well, you know, it's, it's it's one in the afternoon. That makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, no, I, I guess to a fair extent, I do feel European. I sort of like gained more of the sense of being a Scottish on close to and the run up to um, independence. Reference. Independence. Thank you. Um, yeah, and so because obviously, like nationalism. And Britain is usually designated as what the English nationalism is, and it's quite toxic. Because, you know, and when they say British nationalism, it's pretty much English nationalism as well. And there was very much a sense in Scotland at the time that it was much of the same thing. And it did go through a fairly big shift uh, in the lead up to the independence referendum, where it was like a sort of reclamation of Scottish identity. So it definitely, like, you know, I feel more Scottish now than I did then. I also feel, um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that I feel European because at heart, I'm sort of like, we're st still a European federalist. Now, obviously, you know, rather it would be an anarchist federation um, of Europe, uh, however that would look. And, you know, maybe we would discuss that another time. But even in terms of like, you know, you know, we would take, we take a socialist government over anything else at the moment if that's all that's being offered. And I think that, say, something like 
I, I don't think it's impossible for that to happen in Europe, to have a sort of pan-socialist uh, government, pan-national socialist government. Um, so I think moving to Dublin has definitely made me feel more European as well. Um, not that like Edinburgh wasn't cosmopolitan, it just happens to be because of the way that things are. You tend to get more Americans, more Canadians and stuff. It's also um, the fact that over here you use the euro. That helps as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like where we're working at the moment, there's, you know, loads of people in the office that are from all different parts of Europe. Um, and basically, you know, some of them just got a job and then decided to move, you know, and then moved two weeks later without any hassle. Um, so that definitely gives you more of a, you know, of a sense of... Um, what the the eu can do and what it's useful for um but do you think the eu helps or hurts you you feeling like a european it does both it definitely does both um so i would um we'll get into it i guess but yeah it's very much a case of like the good stuff about the eu definitely makes you feel more european say like you know the free movement if you're white basically and from the right country um, and all the bad stuff definitely um, keeps, I guess it maybe in some ways like makes you feel more European because it's like every other country against each other, which is the way it's been for <laughs> like a couple of thousand years before then, before now, you know? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find um, identity to be a weird thing. Uh, so, I mean, I, I've... I think when I met you, I was really not high in Ireland, very unhappy with Ireland. And I still think a lot of the things I complained about then are true. I suppose just age and just cynicism has knocked some of that from the top of my mind. So, I mean, I think identity for me has always been weird. Um, do I feel connected to Europe? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because historically, it's there's this enormously long history going back for, as you said, thousands of years. In terms of, um, and obviously, you know, when I became an adult, uh, I went, went interrailing back in um, was it probably 2008. Um, and it, that was amazing, visiting all the cities and just really feeling that there was a, there was actually a connection with the people I met who were close to my age at that time. So I do think that there is a common experience um, and there's a common history. Um, do I feel European? I suppose to some extent, I suppose that answers the question. Do I think the European Union uh, helps or hinders that? Um, I don't know. I, I think it, it, it's hurt it a lot, and we're going to be talking about why it hurt it a lot over the last um, 10, 12 years, uh, starting with the European um, recession or depression, as it really should be called, um, and the way it treated uh, Greece and the way it behaves towards what they call debtor nations um the north versus the south the catholics versus the protestants to some extent um i do think that's a big big problem i think that hurt a sense of european identity um i think that certainly really pissed me off to such an extent that i thought the way ireland was treated anyway that it, the european union wouldn't last i, I thought that, that back in 2012 so yeah it's it's complicated with me uh, i think culturally obviously i feel a connection to the like the ideas that came out of the enlightenment the ideas, um, you know, the lessons that were learned. I mean, Europe is one of the few countries I can think of, or the countries, continents, series of countries that has a good knowledge of its own history, certainly World War II, and has uh, adapted the correct response to that, which is, you know, integrate, work together, trying to prevent any future, you know, tribal conflicts. So that's a long-winded response, but yes and no, basically. Um, I suppose... Um, we should get on to the actual subject of the of the conversation because European identity is one thing and it's much easier to talk about in many ways. Another thing altogether to talk about the European Union. Um, for those who don't know, I might go briefly and because uh, it'll have to be brief because um, it's stuff I've only learned within the last 24 hours. Um, how was, was that the European Union or as it was known originally, the European Economic Community uh, or it was, it was originally originally known the European Coal and Steel um, Agreement uh, began. Um, so basically, how did it all start? Um, coal on steel? Coal and steel. Coal on steel? You do love putting steel in your colon. Um, yeah. And we're back to Comtown. Um, 
Colin Town. <laughs> Colin Town would be actually that would be a really good name for a podcast. <laughs> um, I, Colin Town. What do you talk about? Oh no, you, you don't know. Um, well, well, you I'm do. Very low brow. Subscribe. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Oh, I'm quite low brow. Um, how's you? You started so basically uh, without going into too much depth. Um, World War Two, really? I mean, World War World War One and World War Two and the Depression included. I think say what you will about you know what happened at you know the first half of the twentieth century. Those who survived through it um, and those who were not war criminals and came into power afterwards for all their problems and there were many problems there. Places like France who were imperialistic, Britain were imperialistic, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they at the very least learned that they could never do that again. Um, I was trying to think this over in my head the other day, and I think, based on how many people died in World War One and World War Two, if you remove those who died in China, about twenty million people died in China and World War Two. Um, you're talking about somewhere in the region of about seventy million people dying of uh, civilians and young men who went off to fight uh, between 1914 and 1945, not including wars in between. Um, it had and destroyed, absolutely flattened Europe completely. So it kind of took something like that for them to reconsider things, but they did at the very least afterwards reconsider them. And as early as 1949, there's a Council of Europe, an attempt to try and move towards it. Even Churchill, for all of his many, many problems, was in favor of the United States of Europe. Um, you have the coal and steel agreement, which, which was just a kind of a, a, a way to have a free trade agreement, uh, kind of focusing on uh, coal and steel, which were the main um, resources that were required for war. They thought, well, if there was a free trade there and we were all integrated on that, there won't be another war. That led to the Treaty of Rome in 1957, where you have the original six members of the EEC, the European Economic Community, who were beginning with a customs union moving towards what they called a greater federation. So even as early as that point, the idea is a political federation, no matter what Nigel Farage or any other fucking idiots say, that was the idea at its very core from the very beginning. And everything else really just follows over that. Ireland and Britain joined in 1973. Uh, you have the um, kind of beginnings of, um, I suppose, uh, administration of the financial system, beginnings of a parliament in the 1970s and 80s, Maastricht Treaty is in 1990, that was negotiated by Thatcher, on the behalf of Britain anyway, in the late 80s. So it's, I mean, all of these things are pretty well embedded for anyone who's listening who thinks it wasn't there from the beginning. It was always going to be a political uh, thing. Um, what it is now is, I suppose, somewhere between a confederation and a federation, a political federation. Um, and it seems to be stalled in that in that position. Um, for uh, interestingly enough, from, from a purely mechanical reason, for um, good reasons, which is that every member state has a veto basically on on these types of big things, and it's being held up because basically the Germans don't want to have a, a fully integrated federated state of Europe because it would mean that they have to take on the debts and they have to agree to the type of printing of money that places like well large parts of Ireland would like and certainly Spain and Italy would like. Um, they want to maintain the type of neoliberal, you know, conservative club that they think Europe, well, in fact, Europe is. So that's kind of as brief as I can as I can be about what Europe uh, was and is. Um, it, it comes from a good idea. Even some of the, you know, the mistakes that were made in terms of how it's been structured or were understandable. Um, as it is right now, it's just basically moribund and doesn't really know how to change, move forward or backwards. Yeah, that's a pretty comprehensive um, overview. It's also uh, unbelievably sort of dry and boring as well, though. And this is sort of the problem that you get when you start talking about the EU is because it's such it's so bureaucratic in its nature and it's so unglamorous. But like what it's doing is like a fairly interesting and important job um, in you know what was the the post war con uh, consensus. Um, and as you've seen that falter, you've also seen the way that the EU has faltered as well. Um, you know, as far as the further we get into the end game of neoliberalism, uh, you sort of see the way that the cracks are forming in uh, the EU as well. Um, so, and that's all I would really add. There is like, you know, it does have its roots, I think, in 
um, in the French Revolution in the sense that, you know, they, there was very much an idea then is that you would need this huge organization to look after Europe uh, to be able to compete. And someone like Victor Hugo was very much into that idea and ideal. Um, so it's it's an idea that had its um, its roots in um, going a long time, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, you could go back even further. I mean, there's there was uh, something I was reading. I can't remember what it was, and I was saying that Europe can, in some way, be the European Union or EC, whatever you want to call it, can be seen as an attempt to reassemble the Roman Empire, which I know is your favorite fucking topic. Um, interestingly, if Britain has left and when Britain uh, was evacuated in like 410, it wasn't long before the, the whole Roman Empire collapsed. I hope that's not well. We'll see if that turns out to be a sign. But um, yeah, no, I mean, there there is something to be um, said. It's Sorry. also good to stress the idea that it does, you know, like he did say it in passing, but it was basically um, just a good idea to stop Europe like descending into another world war as well. Like everyone was pretty much sick of that concept and doing that. Um, and so like, I think that has been its greatest strength as it's, you know, and it's from its original tenant, apart from situations like Bosnia, when it just had no fucking idea what to do. And that's where you start to see the problems really set in for it as an institution. Well, there's other things going on there when it comes to the Yugoslavia uh, civil war, uh, plural because there are many of them I mean a lot of that was Germany which had reunified in 1990 uh, or West Germany whatever you want to call it um, had an active role in, in in trying to break that up I mean it's a long story I wait for anyone listening there's a video online of um, Chomsky talking about it back in the 90s um, I think it's on YouTube feel free to have a look at that it, it is actually quite a dark history as to what Europe in quotation marks Germany in this particular case did do and didn't do. I, I mean, the I would say, you know, there's there's a you know, power blocks, you know, kind of do these types of things. Um, Europe is not a utopia by any stretch of the imagination. It's got lots and lots of problems. It's certainly um, its inability to control or even try and mitigate the military adventurism of places like France, Italy. Britain, obviously, I mean, if you just look at what they've done to Libya uh, or what they've done to Syria, I mean, it's, again, that's not the European Union, that's the member states, but it's not been able to control those type of militaristic um, things. It's just been able to externalize it. Instead of having wars with themselves, they've been able to say, well, Britain, you have seemed to be obsessed with bombing places that have brown people in them. So you go and do that, you know, <laughs> just don't bomb us. And France is kind of the same thing. You can have your your Alan, you can go off and you can know, police the people of North Africa and bomb the shit out of them if you don't agree with them. We won't intervene, you know, but don't, you know, go into the war, don't have a war with the Germans or whatever. So, I mean, from a purely cynical and maybe historical perspective, it's been successful. It got, I mean, it got the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize in 2012 for providing 50 years of peace in Europe. So if you take the cynical view that you, if, if it's achieved nothing other than binding European countries with red tape, money, um, and a sense of history that there's no point going back, then, you know, then it's a, it's a, it's a positive on some level. If you'd like to move forward the world, if you kind of, if you're, if you're of a generation, or at this point generations, the, the Zoomers and the millennials, which is us, that we go like, well, we weren't alive then, and even our parents weren't alive then. We, you know, we need to move forward with a with a more constructive, progressive uh, platform or kind of policies. Then Europe is 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 kind of a giant uh, bulwark of the status quo, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's 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 actually in in serious trouble um, because it's it's really not moving in any direction. And any uh, organization establishment is eventually going to crumble one way or the other. One, you know, whether it's the left or the right or the whatever, uh, or an ecological disaster will come along. Um, I suppose um, we should go on to another question, which is um, most people on left wing, left wing individuals like ourselves, would describe the modern EU as a kind of like a cozy club for liberal, neoliberal capitalists, basically. Um, do you think, James? that an entity like that um by definition really is doomed to collapse 
given the contradictions inherent in globalization. Basically, the type of free trade model they espouse that we've, we've talked about a lot in these episodes, for anyone who might be listening to this for the first time, there's a lot of episodes going, us talking about the basically the problems of that and how it's always going to result in anger amongst working class people and kind of issues amongst certain middle class people too. Um, do you think it's basically doomed by its, by what it is to, to collapse sooner or later? Um, yeah. Uh, one of the main things we come back to in the podcast over and over again is that, and the EU is the perfect example because unlike, say, you know, other things that we've talked about, like Britain and America, like EU's problems are kind of easier to solve in the long run and the short run um, from where I'm standing anyway. Uh, and they've just, again, it's like they have no interest in actually doing the things that need to get done to save itself. And that's where the problem lies, especially in the sense of like of the, the rise of the right in Europe. Um, and the the way that you can say that the EU strips rights from countries, which is kind of not true. Um, I mean, there's some things here and there, but a lot of the time it, it tends to be a case of like what people say is bad about like the EU constitutions. They're all things that you could get sorted at home. Like Ireland could easily you know uh solve a lot of the problems it has um you know without the help of the eu or you know with some guidance and stuff but when it, when you get a left-wing government like you did in greece or spain and they go out of their way to just fucking banjax it and kick the ball over the fence especially with greece where they're basically like like this is a bad idea you do this again you know we're looking at you spain you do this we're gonna um, do the same thing to you when it comes to finances um, shows you that it is to some extent it is this overarching terrible power um, and that's what sort of makes Brexit and what made Brexit quite a, a weird event because everything that say like Farage was complaining about it was all things that Britain had forced through in the first place like part of the reason that the EU is is like so neoliberal and so fucked is because of the UK. <laughs> um, and so it also doesn't imply the rules evenly. So, you know, it's got human rights laws that it, you know, you're meant to abide by, but um, you can just break them as much as you want if you're big enough. Um, and they'll just go, oh, well, we're quite angry at you, but we're actually not gonna do anything about it so then you're like well what's the point of this institution then because all you do is you take and you don't give too much back in terms of you know like protecting rights which is what you're fucking meant to do you know like um right to house is within eu law and in ireland we're in a fucking huge housing crisis and it's only got worse over covid but with plenty of houses um, sitting free. So, you know, the EU should be coming in and forcing the government's hand to, you know, set up new laws or systems to, to sort this. And it's just got no interest. What it is interested in is trying um, to get them... Yeah. Just interrupt you there, it doesn't have the power to do that. So, but surely it's going against human rights, though, of the EU. Yeah, it is, but they can't enforce it. And if they try to penalize a country, it, it would be vetoed by another one. The thing is, like, it's so... Like, I didn't know this literally until the last 24 hours. It's very hard for the European Union to act against, act against a member state for breaking the rules. Because to do so, you'll have to have all the member states come together. And there's, like, the commission can't just punish you. Even the courts can't. You have to have, if it's a member state that's broke the rules, like Hungary, for example, or Poland, you can't really do anything to them because you have to get all the member states to agree to it. It has to be a consensus. It's not a majoritarian organization. So, it, it, you know, I, I have many problems with the European Union, but their inability to act is kind of baked into how it is right now. Um, so they can't really do very much. And not to say that they would do a, an awful lot if they could. I'm just saying that their inability to act is, you know, is is baked into what they are. Well, then that's sort of like, um, all right, so I was wrong in that sense, but then it, it, it just strengthens my point overall then, because then it has got no executive power. So um, it's it's effectively toothless. 
apart from if it wants to fuck up your banking system. Well, that's that's part of the um, the membership of the European Eurozone, yeah. So, I mean, when Ireland signed up to that, and 19 other countries signed up to it in the end, we gave up sovereignty effective. Well, we definitely gave up sovereignty over uh, obviously our own currency and being able to set that. Um, it's not particularly surprising that countries that could control how much money they printed, otherwise known as quantitative easing, um, did better overall. America was able to print its way out of, to some degree, out of the last uh, recession. Britain didn't do that because it was uh, run by conservatives who believed in austerity, but they could have. And I think in the end, they started to do it. Um, you know, and there's probably other examples as well. But the, the big problem with um, the EU, other than it's got lots of uh, administrative and organizational issues baked into how it makes decisions, which are there, don't get me wrong, anyone listening to this who knows how the EU is difficult to get stuff done, that's kind of the nature, at least in principle, of the type of federated democracy we're talking about. Now, it's, the EU is not that, but it's got a lot of the similar federated uh, and decentralized powers, so that it's, it is difficult to do things. Um, uh, like penalize a member state, for example. That said, um, things like, for example, that the parliament is just one of three executive branches, and that pretty much if, if the parliament decides on something unanimously, it's not going to happen unless the commission and the council um, kind of agree on that as well. That is a big problem. And there's uh, one of the documentaries our lovely listeners will find at the bottom of the podcast is of a, a Deutsche Welle, German um, station goes around Europe talking to young people, and the number—I don't know if you watched that one, James—the number one response, other than the, there was a couple of people who were actually quite wealthy, going, "Oh, you is great." The major response I saw was just comp either apathy or just hatred uh, from people um, who might well say they felt European, but they felt that the, the consensus in the the capitals and certainly the consensus in Brussels was a neoliberal one, and. I just I think that the big problem it has is the same problem any establishment in nation states have, which is that there's an elite, which is a neoliberal elite um, in charge that just is living in a bubble, really. Um, and I think the problem with that is that elite is just so detached from reality. It's almost as bad as Trumpy Trumpists and you know Brexiteers. They just cannot see the contradictions which are staring them in the face. They go, oh no, things will be fine. You know, we'll be fine. They just completely shrug their shoulders at it and don't realize that these things aren't going to just sit there forever you know sooner or later, i mean no one in their in their club saw brexit coming they, they were very surprised by brexit whereas in hindsight if you look at the the build-up to it you know there's a very good chance it would have it, it would have passed at the time you know um and again if if italian exit were to happen they wouldn't be surprised by that too and i i think that its biggest problems other than you know, having a free trade <laughs> model where, you know, deindustrialization happens and the type of uh, gutting of, of public services is something that, while it happens to a much larger and more violent extent in Britain and Ireland, uh, it's still happening in France. I mean, Macron is deeply unpopular. Um, Le Pen is building support of, no, I'm going to make sure you have your pensions. I'm going to make sure you have your, your, your proper wages, you know, even a universal basic income she's thinking about, uh, but not for migrants and not for immigrants. So I mean, I think it's I think it's um, the problems are are evident to us because we're we're looking at it from uh, I wouldn't say an unbiased perspective. We have our biases, but I think a lot of people can see it. They those in power cannot, and I think they're not likely to see it anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that we've sort of been talking about for three episodes now, which is. Um, like they just refuse to to press the the money button. So if you're an average citizen of the EU, um, what does it do for you? It doesn't do anything for me, from what I know, apart from the fact that up until recently, like you know, I go to nip over to France uh, fairly easily, and you know, uh, other parts of Europe without you know firing about with a visa, which is nice, um, but you know, it's never really done you know i can't point anything out and say like there you go that's you know they sorted me out in this situation or this has enriched my life in that way um so that's how lots of people feel but even the people that did rely on it say like you know 
farmers in Wales who got like what was it the most amount of money from the EU when it came to farming um for whatever reason that might be a, a bullshit statistic that I've just pulled out my arse I can't remember what the exact thing is but you know you mean, no, what you're saying that is what there is a true fact which is the Wales in fact the part of Wales that got the most money from the EU uh, was the area that got the most spread of population of all of the United Kingdom. So they the huge amounts of money went into, I think, South Wales, or maybe it was North Wales. But yeah. it was South Wales. And so they definitely benefited from the EU in some sort of sense. And they told it to fuck off, you know, like Wales over overwhelmingly voted for Brexit as well. So, you know, in some in some senses, it's got a fucking PR problem because it's always seen as the enemy of the outside. Um and yeah, James, just to interrupt there for a second, some of that is to do with the fact that national governments or oppositions or whatever powers, Orban's a good example, blames everything on the EU, whereas in fact, Orban, Hungary is the largest recipient of EU money. They get about 120 billion, I think. No, no, sorry, it's not that much. Something along the lines of like 13 or 14 billion a year. And he pockets a lot of that and gives it to his fucking friends. And it's one of the reasons why they're holding up uh, the budget at the moment, um, which which includes a $1.8 trillion relief fund for COVID, they're holding it up because they're being told that unless that um, a bill will, will pass simultaneously that will actually penalize them and it will penalize them in a way that will not require the, all the countries to agree. So they're holding that up. So I'm, I, I, I know it's it's the EU is very complicated and it is actually very bureaucratic. So it um, it is something that I think you, you're making a correct point the people don't see it making any differences in their lives. Um, I think to some degree that's bad. Um, I mean, they, to some degree they don't, but to other degrees they do. I mean, in terms of the roads that were built in Ireland, liberalization overall in Ireland, I don't think would have happened. But for European Union constantly looking at their watch going, how long is this going to take Ireland? Come on, catch up to the 20th century, let alone the 21st. Um, but there are at the same time national governments, and Britain's a great example that blames everything on Europe. Uh, whereas, in fact, it's really the Tories, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, again, this is, like, you know, the issue... Again, it's... Let's put it... I think saying it's a PR issue is a good good way to, to go about it because of the way that it acts as an institution and the voices that it speaks with. It is very much, like, a cosmopolitan um, voice and um, way of presenting itself uh, and that rubs a lot of people up the wrong way uh, and that's not to say that there isn't loads of great things about um, you know cosmopolitan lifestyle you know for instance in Dublin you know it is good that you can just fucking go down to a French restaurant or an Italian restaurant and you can mix with all these people um, in a city and you know if they want to go home that's fine for them to do if they want to stay, you know, they don't have to go through all this paperwork. You know, that does give like a good sense of community um, and, you know, a sharing of ideas and stuff like that. But I mean, that's, that's the only thing that I can really point out to is like what's good about it. And you could just yeah, do that with like, That's somewhat the fault of, of where it came from. I mean, in terms of what Britain, where Britain put the money that it got from Europe, it didn't put it in Scotland. Put it a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the money was into the hands of farmers, uh, or you know, sometimes it got into certain areas. Also, a lot of um, British people, at least the ones I've met, uh, tend to see Europe as the kind of place where rich people have a second, like a third house, a villa in the Dordogne, um, and maybe that's kind of what it is. And and their minds when they go on holiday, they go to Spain, and Spain to them isn't Europe as. You know, as as was palpably clear when so many people who were uh, immigrants, English immigrants in Spain, voted for Brexit and were surprised that that might mean they have to leave Spain. I think there's there that's somewhat about connected to your own where you were grew up, of course, and and its relationship with Europe. And obviously, Brexit's the extreme example of that kind of disconnect from what Europe is. From an Irish perspective, I mean, most people would think of two things. One is the liberalization and the kind of financialization of the economy. That's all because of the fact we're in the European Union and the single market. But also at the same time, what they did between 2010 to 2014 or so, which was imposing unbelievably violent austerity. Um, now, they said, oh, that's our fault because we let the banks 
do what they did and then we bailed them out and didn't realize how much they were in debt and bankrupted the country, which is true as well. But uh, I think the, the problem Europe has, other than the fact it doesn't promote itself very well, is that it's ruled at this point, um, and the European elections were last year, so it seems like it'll be not significantly different. It's ruled by people who believe that, you know, there is this, there isn't a magic money tree, that money is something that is finite. Uh, they're conservatives, you know, and they don't understand that when you have control of you, know, the ECB is the largest fucking bank in the world. It can print as much money as it likes. It can create euro bonds or COVID bonds. It can buy its way out of any problem. That's the power of something along the lines of the European Union. It's just not used correctly. And everybody who, well, the majority of the people anyway, people who aren't living apparently in, in the Netherlands or certain parts of Germany or, I don't know, fucking Finland apparently, know that. It's those countries and and you know probably people in other parts of the uh, the countries as well who are hung up on these ideas and they because of the nature of the european union it's become clogged um and so um yeah i mean it's it's the thing i suppose we have to um talk about now is who's actually taking advantage of this and it's not the left sadly it's not the left i wish it was the left but it's not uh there's major momentum in countries uh, like Italy, Hungary, and Poland, all of which have uh, right-wing, quote-unquote, populists, hate that term, uh, right-wing extremists, the um, five-star, uh, is it uh, five-star something? Or the Northern League, whatever they're called in Italy. They're in kind of a coalition government. The Fedez Party in Hungary, led by Viktor Orban, and the Peace and Justice Party in Poland, uh, who, if it wasn't for the fact they got tons of money from Europe, would be out of here quicker than anything, and for the most part, just ignore them. Uh, but Marine Le Pen, uh, the AFD um, in Germany, um, are also, you know, signs of what can happen if 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 nothing changes, if there's a stasis, the status quo won't change for whatever reason. These guys will fill the gap and and will say, well, no, actually, we can give you everything you want and national glory and restoring the glory of Hungary, etc. If we just disestablish the EU, or at the very least, remove it from what it is now and bring it back to just a basic free trade agreement or something along those lines. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what would you say about that? About the right, as always, is 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 on, is on the march. Um, do you think they have a chance of succeeding at what they want to do? Um, yeah, but I think it's easy to play for for either side, um, and that's there. It's like the the people that are definitely going to get as fucked is the centrists. That's just that's like certain because they're not even playing the game at the moment. Um, where the right are winning at the moment, but they have their you know they have huge issues, and yeah, maybe they've got a little bit of a or I mean they've got a huge lead at the moment. But, you know, somewhere like Hungary or Poland are going to find out how fucking difficult that game is to play when they're not actually going to deliver anything that they say they're going to do. In the same way that's going to happen in Britain, where you're seeing it, you know, like they're sort of somehow still <laughs> um, getting away with um, the stuff that they're getting away with, you know, like I said, oh, 350 million for however, for the NHS, um, and then just going like, oh yeah, we're not going to do that. But like the people that were believed that in the first place, right, they're so fucking credulous that, you know, if you told them the, the sky was um, made of a puckered arsehole, they'd probably believe it as well. Um, they're not worth thinking about. Uh, so they're just going to fall for every um, easy grift that's going. Um, but at some point, they're going to find out that, you know, once they're out of the, the EU um, and things start really going tits up for everyone, that the Tories are not going to really be able to hold on to their, their lead that they have in the same way that Trump had lost it in America because of COVID. So <clears throat> there is a chance for the left to come in and actually start picking up things. And if if the EU wants to survive, it'll see that happening and then it'll start working with it or start, you know, going, you know, not going against it. For instance, in Ireland, in the next election, there's a good chance that you might see a Sinn Féin government come in. Now, what's happened the last couple of times when a government like come that into Europe, EU have come in and they've thrown the weight around and they've caused a huge amount of problems.
maybe this time they won't do that. And actually, um, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm just saying it's a possibility because you're going to see the, you know, the the rise of the far right um, all across Europe, um, and like they're going to have to to pull their finger out. Do you get me? No, I do. Um, and I do think there's some very tentative signs of that. I mean, um, you can see it in terms of the relief package for the um, for COVID, which is part of the budget, which is being debated at the moment. As I said, being held up at the moment by the right-wing extremists in Hungary and, and Poland. Um, but they'll do some deal with them. They'll throw money at them. That's probably what's going to happen. I mean, the idea of printing money to solve this problem is something that's really anathema apparently for conservatives from the northern part of europe it's very very kind of uh, kind of protestant circa 1600 territory like it's like the used to be called um, the low countries um northern northern germany sweden you know who have to have this view which is that oh no you can't do that it's everything the world will end if you print money um whereas well, the revolution knows what happens when you you print money and you don't do a good job of it um, no i agree but, but there's a big difference between a nation state printing money uh and an enormous entity like the european central bank uh printing money and in fact more importantly i think it's they shouldn't just be printing money i think they could should have a covid bond which is the same thing they did in world war one and world war two which is basically uh, understand that this is a, a once in a lifetime or once in a century event or once in a whatever event um you say okay we're gonna have x amount of money and we're gonna pay it off over decades the problem with countries like italy and spain being you know on the teetering on the edge is that they don't know that they're secure if they said to them look this is something we're going to be paying off for decades. That's fine. We're going to make sure we do that, and but not in a way that will destroy day-to-day -day life. Uh, we're talking about some, like for example, Britain in the 1830s took out a 25 million uh, pound loan, and at the time, the I think the entire uh, GDP or whatever it was of 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 Britain was significantly less than that. But they took it out and they paid it off. I think last time they paid it off was in 2000. Pardon me, that was my phone. In 2013. So, I mean, these are things that there's a track record for it. There's, it's, it's not particularly hard to do. Um, but the idea that that these types of solutions, which are fucking self-evident to me and to really just most economists, this is not a radical proposal by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's taken all of this to get that through. So, I mean, it's not great that it took a global pandemic for the EU to, to, to tilt in the direction of okay you know we're just going to have your you know uh, covid bonds or euro bonds or whatever we're going to print the money we're going to deal with this problem but at the very least it's it's got there now um i i'm saying this not to be optimistic i'm merely agreeing with james that there's a possibility that you know enough people are beginning to see this that there's there's a there are obvious ways to get around this if you just ignore the type of uh, kind of uh, tunneled visioned um ideology of certain people in Europe, and unfortunately, many of them are in power. Um, I suppose we'll finish off the the podcast with, um, I don't know, not optimism, but a, kind of a more general question. Um, the generation that lived through Second World War, that kind of built the original EEC, has has no died, long gone in many cases for those who actually built it. Yeah, but even their um, the, those who fought during World War Two, or even some of their kids are now dead too. Um, Europe spent much of the two, three, four, add as many thousand centuries as you, or uh, as many centuries or thousands of millennia, pardon me, as you like, uh, in tribal warfare. It is actually, and for much of the previous 500 years, Europe tore itself apart in religious, ideological, militaristic, nationalistic, fascistic wars. Um, it, the, the fact that we've gone 70 years without a war in Europe, I think, is now a record. I don't think that Europe has ever gone that long without going to war. And I do mean a major war, because I know Yugoslavia was a war too, but I mean like a continent-wide great war. Um, do we think this is going to continue? Can we? Can Europe, in whatever happens to the European Union, is there a way to prevent Europe going back to the type of tribal 
sectarian wars of the past, um, has European integration, whatever way you want to call it, political, economic, cultural, whatever, has that gone far enough to prevent the past repeating, at least for for a while anyway? Or are we kind of doomed in a certain way to go back to that type of tribal war? You're pretty you're pretty much an expert on on the, um, uh, the medieval tribal warfares of our past. So what do you think? Yeah, it's a difficult one. It is just like, it really just depends what happens. I think one of the good things about, um, you know, moving into the 21st century is that America, as its empire is waning, uh, its interference in Europe is, you know, is feeling less and less as every year goes by, um, especially with someone like Trump who didn't even <laughs> seem to be interested in Europe in any concept. And every time, it, you know, he had any dealing with um, Merkel or someone like that, um, just threw a complete tantrum because, you know, did rocks. But um, I think... Did you think the dude rocks? Yeah, dude rocks. Trump... Trump is a, a rocking dude. Okay. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't really see, like, you could maybe see something along the lines of, like, like, a war with Hungary and some concept. Now, obviously, the EU doesn't have a, a military wing, um, so it would have to be something like NATO that steps into that. Um, or unless the EU decides that it's somehow going to to bring some sort of um, mil like pan military um, entity into um, into being, but I don't really see that happening, you know, because NATO is still there. Um, but something like that—that's more like a, like a border clash, you know. I don't really see. But you could, James. To be honest with you, Trump, your your boy, Trump did say that he would leave NATO. So, I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that his successor, whoever that is, who wins next time, because it's not going to be the fucking Democrats that win next time, um, will do that. I mean, it's not outside the realms of possibility they leave NATO and NATO just remains a European kind of military club, you know? Yeah, but then what's, like, fine. Like, I don't see any issue with that. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not, I mean, we're not big fans of NATO by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe with America out of it, it might be less of a fucking wingding um, but I, I think, like, to be honest, this might be a very spicy take, but your main problem going forward in Europe is going to be what happens to, to England. How is this going to react? Where is that going to go? Because it's, you know, it's the asshole of Europe. Um, and in, every, in, every, in every possible sense. In every possible sense, and it tends to cause problems in one way or the other. So I don't... What happens with... Um, you know how bad Brexit goes for somewhere like England, and you know where I can see potential issues with you know somewhere like you know if Scotland is trying to get out and England starts, um, you know causing major issues. Same with Northern Ireland. They're the you know the the issues that I can see going forward. Where it could you cause a huge existential crisis in Europe? Um. Yes and no. I don't know about Brexit. I think, to be honest with you, in the eyes of, I mean, again, just from some of the stuff I I, I watched to prepare for this, a lot of com places in Europe have, have just tuned out to that. So they, they they were like, "That's enough. We've we've dealt with that. We're we're walking away, and we'll leave it to the bureaucrats." I think really the big, big, big thing, and it's something we didn't talk about, um, but we'll talk about it now before we finish the podcast because it's probably the most important thing, and it's tied up together, is migration into europe and the demographic uh bomb kind of ticking time bomb that is demography not demography pardon me um maybe it is demography age the age tie bomb anyway in europe uh places like germany are going to reduce in population by 20 million within the next 15 to 20 years there's so many old people in europe the average age in germany is like 45 people are just having really tiny families or no families at all and, and that's across europe um, you have a population that's going to need workers to pay tax, to pay for their pensions and to pay for their care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the same time, you have millions of people from North Africa, from Middle East who want to come to Europe. Uh, ironically enough, because Europe has been bombing their countries for the last <laughs> hundred years, um, but certainly pretty intensively since 2001. And there is this fortress Europe mentality, which is no, they can't come in. I was, just, uh, you know, those of us who 
are on a left-wing perspective might might say, okay, well, there might be amongst those many individuals, there might be a psychopath or two, but of the millions and millions of people, you're going to have that anyway. Um, what we need is people to come into the country to to work to to contribute. And why wouldn't they want to? You know, why wouldn't they, for the most part, kind of um, you know welcome that type of support, welcome that opportunity? Most people who who migrate to countries uh, are not serial killers, not psychopaths, not whatever. But there is this mentality in Europe, which is its real Achilles heel, which is it can't accept that type of demographic change. It can't accept the idea on some level of Europe becoming a multicultural continent. Uh, France is having really serious problems with this right now. And in, because it has the largest uh, Muslim population, most of which, by the way, are, are French. Like they were born in France. Their grandparents were born in France. Yeah, maybe their great-great-grandparents were born in Algeria. And we can have another episode on what happened in Algeria with the French. But they that is the big, big problem for Europe, I think. It does not know how to deal with um, this problem. And, and, and it's in concert with other problems. Their inability to you know, uh, come up with a response to the financial crisis in 2008 that didn't involve hideous austerity has left a lot of people very vulnerable and very angry. And it's, uh, and it's just not in their... Um, capability to let people come into their country, their villages, their towns or whatever from another part of the world and in their minds get a better deal than they're getting. Even if they, you know, they won't be able to have a pension unless these people come in. So I think that's the issue in Europe right now. And I just don't see anyone other than the right coming up with a, a, a really kind of uh, passionate response to it. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it is again down to the you know, there's like two or three ways out of it. And the obvious, the main one to go with is just fucking improve everyone's life and make sure that they've got jobs or don't have to work. Um, and, you know, somehow paying taxes um, in, you know, the ways that we've looked for it before in a post-work world in the, in the podcast. Um, that's one of the ways you do it. Um, and you'll fucking take out a lot of your, your oncoming problems by doing that. But also, like, reparations to somewhere like Africa is, like, a fucking huge thing that should be happening uh, and will make, you know, it won't only make the world a safer place, uh, it'll make Europe a safer place, and it'll make it a nicer place as well. I mean, I was talking to some lad um, in a taxi the other day, and he was from Uganda, and... He basically has been what here for like three or four years or something like that, and um, you know from driving taxis, he's basically made enough money to to buy a farm in Uganda that he's planning to um, you know to spend the rest of his life on, um, and he's getting this. You know, he what he was saying to me was from you know the Ugandan perspective, what COVID has done is made them sort of. I mean, this is anecdotal as well, obviously, but. You know, he's saying, like, why are we coming to Europe for? Like, we should be staying in somewhere like, um, you know, our homes. We'd rather be there. Like, that's where we want to be. That's where we're, you know, um, we grew up, et cetera, et cetera. Like, not everyone wants to fucking leave, but it's just because the opportunities are not there to do it. Um, and so if you want to to make a better life for yourself, most of us have to fucking leave. And lots of Irish people know what that's like as well. So, you know, to then start getting wound up about, you know, people coming over here, et cetera, et cetera, especially in Ireland, is one of the most, like, galling things that you could see. There's, um, about, there's about 70 million people worldwide who are descendant of the 12 million Irish you left. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but, you know, here's... I'm not saying this is what you would want to do, but it would be better than what you've got. It's a sort of like what, you know, for somewhere for Africa, like a three-year visa or something like that, where they can go to wherever they want into Europe and do what they want to do. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the problem is because it's an inherently uh, systemically racist country, it will be uh, uh, um, Europe. I mean, uh, it will be like driving a taxi, um, being uh, like a... A cleaner or something like that um but at least it would fucking you know <laughs> like get things moving have people paying taxes you know like being productive members of society in some way um before, before we, we kind of wrap it up because i'm getting very aware of the time well maybe this is something that you can definitely talk about is there not a 
rather worrying parallel between what Europe is in a, unable to deal with in regards to migration and what happened to the Roman Empire with migration. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much of the of the same elk. It's very much very similar, um, and much like the you know the Roman Empire, um, the the big button is there in in the troika to to solve the problems, and they're refusing to push it. Um, and let's not forget though that like the European elections, like the people above them are not elected, so they. Um, the main thing that you know, one of the main things that the left should be doing as a as an overall idea is reforming the EU because, like, it's not fucking great. But I think if we want something like socialism, the only way that we're going to be able to do it uh, is to go with Marx's idea of doing it as you know Europe at the same time because we've seen what happens when you do it one country at a time, um, and so we should be you know going into this grand. Uh, because you can be Irish or Scottish and be European at the same time. They're not contradictory um, ideas to hold. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of fucking strength there. And it's the framework is there for us to, to work from. Um, so, you know, why don't we start using it? Like, start fucking promoting it. But, again, this is, you know, when it comes down to something like Brexit, Part of the reason that that vote was let lost, I'm not saying it's their reason, I'm saying it's our reason, is people like me and you just really didn't give a shit. Um, we weren't interested. Well, like, I, wasn't, I wasn't living there at the time. You yeah, were. Like, we, you know, we went out and voted half-heartedly because you're like, oh, well, I mean, he is pretty shit. It does a lot of terrible things. We've got no real interest in looking after it. Um, but as it's... As it disintegrates, there's your time that you can sort of nip in and start um, taking it over and, you know, making it a more democratic and a fair, um, better system. So, like, I've in some ways, I've got a lot of hope for what the EU could be. Do I think it's going to happen? Realistically, probably not. But, you know, it's worth the punt. I, I've become convinced, maybe I'll just finish on this. I've become convinced that things can't be reformed until they collapse historically speaking, I think there's just so much um, bureaucracy, so much uh, kind of inability to bend and reform that becomes part of a, a mon thing, you know, in institutions become like a monolith and they can't change, they can only collapse and then from that. And I'm also very aware that that's, that's in, in a rather perverse way with, um, with Cummings, um, what's his name, Cummings? The British yeah, guy? Cummings. Dominic Cummings, he actually believes kind of the same thing. You should tear things down before you rebuild them. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that in a positive way. I just think that's inevitably what happens. But um, somewhere like the EU collapsing, we'd fucking see the end of Ireland um, because it's only through Ireland that it's got some, you know, financial stability in the first place. So, no, um, absolutely. We were completely an economic uh, colony of Britain before. Yeah. It was it was Europe that allowed us to get out of that. I mean, it's there's no two ways about it. The the companies that are here are only here because we're part of the European Union and we're they have access to the single market. If that disappeared, they wouldn't be here. They'd go somewhere like Singapore. They'd go somewhere like you know the Canary Islands, whatever. It's warmer in both those places, you know, and the tax level zero. Um, yeah. Anyway, we could talk really forever about Europe, and we'll probably have another episode about it or some element of it. Anyway, um, there's not really much we can say other than it, it, there are worrying signs there. Um, it is something that has positives. Um, it has many, many, many negatives. But uh, from coming from a country like Ireland, which it, it would not be the same place it is now for all of its pluses and negatives, for but for the pluses too. But for its connection to Europe, Europe has brought. In some way, whether we like it or not, has has symbolized a, a, an end to the type of European tribal wars that just devastated the continent. So I wouldn't, you know, want Europe to to um, disappear tomorrow. Um, I would rather it to be reformed. Obviously, I'd rather it be socialist and I'd rather it be more democratic. I don't. I don't think those things are impossible. Um, I think we maybe have to have another conversation in another episode about the nature of power, the nature of these types of institutions, and why they're not really reformable. And that's that's a much broader conversation about how power sits, you know. Um, but we might finish up there. Do you want to have a last word? The last word, James. Um, yeah, I know that the pubs are back open and people would be going out to them, um, seeing people and stuff. 
Uh, so have fun. Stay COVID safe, though. Be sensible, eh? Thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> you're um, still, right. You just, like, if you didn't do any of that winching, right? Just get a number and wait until it's all over, eh? Hopefully you enjoyed our take on Europe, or at least our, our attempts at uh, elocutions. Um, we don't know what we'll talk about next week. You'll find out when you listen, I suppose. Um, and hopefully we have more than two of us here. But uh, if you liked the podcast or if you like this episode in particular, please do share it on any platform you're on, whatever the fuck you're on. Um, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. See you, friends. <laughs> friends. <laughs> They're my friends. That's like um, Bobby Boucher from Waterboy. That's my friend. My friends. My friends. Waterboy. Thank you.